<clears throat> continuing with the chapter called The Unconditioned and Non-Locality. This is chapter 9. And we got to reading number 4. And this is uh, another passage from the Udana, again from the, uh, uh, the eighth chapter, which is called The Patali Village. One who is dependent has wavering. One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire or inclination. There being no desire or inclination, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here nor a there nor a between the two. This, just this, is the end of Dukkha. Well, this passage has got a lot of resonances in it. Uh, it is a bit uh, related, a bit close to um, the uh, teaching of the Buddha to Bahia, which was way back in chapter 3. And this is Bahia was a wanderer, um, the uh, Bahia Daruchiriya, which means Bahia of the bark. Uh, bark cloth robes and uh, he encountered the Buddha on the street and uh, uh, asked the Buddha to give him teachings and the Buddha said uh, we are on our arms around Bahia this is not the time to give teachings and then Bahia asked him three times and the Buddha said well uh, if, if a Tathagata is pressed up to the third time then he has to answer so pay attention so he gave Bahia this uh, brief teaching and uh, Bahia um, was uh, awarded the title of the monk who understand who understood the teaching uh, completely uh, in the in the quickest way because he became an arahant uh, on hearing this extremely brief teaching. And what the Buddha said to Bahia was, uh, "In the scene there is only the scene. In the heard there is only the heard. In the sensed there is only the sensed, meaning tasted, smelt, touched." In the cognized, there is only the cognized. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. When Bahia, there is for you, in the seen, only the seen, in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. So, seeing that clearly, there's a, a recognition of the empty nature of the, the I feeling. When by here there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When by here there is no you there, then by here you are neither here nor there nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So another rendering of that is um, the Pali is a little bit uh, uh, ambiguous there. So there's, you get a variety of different translations. Um, and so that uh, this is uh, one, just one version of that. Uh, another version uh, goes along the lines of uh, uh, when you see that there is no you here, you will see that there is uh, no thing there. When you see there is no thing there, then you realize that you cannot be located, you cannot locate uh, yourself, quote-unquote, either in the world of this or in the world of that or anywhere between the two. So it also, that passage um, from the Udana also relates to um, the very wonderful and comprehensive um, Datu Vibhanga Sutta, which is Sutta number 140 in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya. This is the one, uh, another one, this, uh, you remember Bahia got knocked down by a, a, a runaway cow and got killed. Interestingly enough, uh, Pukusati in in the Datu Vibhanga Sutta um, also got knocked down by a runaway cow and got killed. <laughs> they were karmically related, uh, and so that um, that passage from the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, which means the exposition on the elements. So this is the uh, just to remind you, this is the uh, the that passage that. Uh, has resonances with this from the Datu Vibhanga Sutta. Bhikkhu, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. 
I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form is a conceiving. I shall be formless, like in a future birth. No, he's talking about that. I shall be formless is a conceiving. I shall be percipient is a conceiving. I shall be non-percipient is a conceiving. Conceiving is a disease. Conceiving is a tumor. Conceiving is a barb, like a uh, a hook with a, a fit like a fish hook. By overcoming all conceivings, bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. They are not shaken and are not agitated. For there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. Not being born, how could they age? Not aging, how could they die? Not dying, how could they be shaken? Not being shaken, why should they be agitated? So this, uh, um, in in terms of uh, non-locality, it also has this resonances of the um, that passage from the Udana uh, that I read out yesterday about uh, neither coming nor going nor standing still. It was a very uh, a favoured theme of, of uh, Lumpur Cha. So that's all uh, wrapped up together there in that uh, particular passage from uh, the Udana. And then the next reading is from uh, Bhikkhu Nyanananda, who's a, a very um, wise and accomplished uh, monk from Sri Lanka. And this is from his little book called The Magic of the Mind, which is a commentary on the Kalakarama Sutta, which, again, we quoted earlier on. So this is uh, Venerable uh, Nyanananda speaking about the same theme. Also, even though he's uh, Sri Lankan, his English is more intricate and um, uh, refined than many most English-speaking people, or people who have English as their, their first language. So it, it's a little hard to follow, so I'll try and uh, uh, speak clearly. The concepts of coming and going are relative to the standpoint already taken in the process of identification. A relationship having been thus established between one's present identity and a possible future state, there follows the corollary, death and birth, with its note of finality. With it, relative distinctions of a here and a there and a midway between also set in. The entire process, whether it be understood in the context of the epicycle of samsara, traceable to every moment of living experience, so an epicycle is like a, a small circle. So like an epicycle of uh, samsara, like a, that'll be um, using that kind of term to refer to a, a, a birth into a mind state or birth into um, a, a, a feeling or a perception in the present moment. Or a larger scale births um, of uh, a, um, the, a regular cycle of birth and death over a whole lifetime. So the entire process, whether it be understood in the context of the epicycle of samsara, traceable to every moment of living experience, or in the context of the larger cycle of samsara, rolling in time and space, is a perpetual alternation between a thisness and an otherwiseness. So the Pali word for otherwiseness, so it's like, like, like this and like that. So otherwiseness is... Itta bhava anya, itta bhava So itta is this, and then anyata is that. Itta bhava anyata So whether it's the alternation between a thisness and an otherwiseness. Now the such like one, tadiso is the Pali word for such like. The such like one who sees the danger in resorting to supports, which harks back to this um, uh, teachings on unsupported consciousness. So the such-like one who sees the danger in resorting to supports, which only give way underneath, grasps at nothing and clings to nothing. He has given up all standpoints, uh, referring to the Kala Karama Sutta, and in so doing he has discovered a basis for firmness which never betrays. His is an unshakable deliverance of the mind, akupa ceto vimuti, 
since he is free from attachment, anuroda, and repugnance, virodha, in the face of worldly vicissitudes of gain and loss, honor and dishonor, praise and blame, happiness and unhappiness. The Buddha's declaration in the Kalakarama Sutta, thus monks, the Tathagata being such like, tadiso, in regard to all phenomena, seen, heard, sensed and cognized, is such, tatta. It's an allusion to these, this uninfluenced mind of the emancipated state. So as, as I said, his English is, is uh, very accurate, but a, a little bit dense and uh, maybe hard to follow. But uh, what he, he's pointing to this same um, quality, uh, again, it appears in, uh, in the Kalakarama Sutta, and, uh, uh, that was uh, quoted in, in chapter 6. And it's uh, <coughs> whether you think in terms of a here and there um, as um, something very, very local and immediate, or you think of this life and the next life, um, and uh, or uh, <coughs> you know, any such kind of um, creation of this and, and that, this uh, this way and, the, and, and, and another way, then it's... Uh, pointing to that, uh, the danger of looking for support or a, uh, a landing place or that sense of me being somewhere. And so the, it's uh, uh, speaking about that. Um, as he uses this very nice phrase, he has discovered a basis for firmness which never betrays, so that, that the, the, the firmness or the, the reliability is in that, the very quality of, of awareness and uh, that... Uh, mind that's not identified with coming and going. And this, uh, this term, such like, tadiso, is also related to Tathagata, or, or the, the, the one thus come, one thus gone. So any questions on that? It's kind of following up uh, um, and keep, uh, uh, keeping to the same theme as the previous couple of readings. So. Arjun, yes. It's just a thought, but what realizes nirvana? The chitta. Just the mind. The chitta. The awareness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why it says chaito vimuti. So nirvana is unconditioned and cannot be seen or described through a normal sense projection. Mm-hmm. So then, for the chitta to be aware of nibbana, wouldn't the chitta have to be unconditioned? Otherwise, there would be a condition known and unconditioned. That's for you to work out. <laughs> <laughs> the the awareness. I mean, this is. I I don't know if you were here yesterday, but um, the uh, one of the central teachings that you have in the the forest tradition. Is this principle that awareness is intrinsically in the the, the awakened awareness of, of uh, vijja knowing is transcendent of the five khandhas? If it wasn't, then liberation would be impossible. But it's because the heart which knows is uh, intrinsically separate; it's transcendent of the five khandhas. Therefore, liberation is possible. One of the things I was saying yesterday is that in in the Abhidhamma. That's like oh no 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 every faculty of of, cog- of knowing is uh, is part of the five khandhas, and uh, it doesn't make sense because then if that was the case then liberation would be impossible. So this was one of the teachings that Ajahn Chah received from from Ajahn Man, and that had a really uh, huge impact on him. And that uh, it was uh, uh, he only stayed with with Venerable Ajahn Man for three days, and, and my understanding is this was the in the talk that uh, that he gave on the third night, that uh, and he made this this um, uh, observation or, or uh, conveyed that teaching that it's the the uh, the mind which is aware, the puru, the one who knows, is intrinsically transcendent of, of the five khandhas. If it wasn't, uh, liberation would be impossible. But because it is, then liberation is possible. So the word chitta encompasses quite a lot of qualities, but it's that that faculty of of awakened awareness is uh, that quality which knows the five khandhas uh, and uh, is not uh, identified with them. It's just an unborn awareness, in effect. 
it's a yeah it's a, it's transcendent it's a, it's a quality if you like it's like the buddha arises from the dhamma the one who knows arises is an attribute of that fundamental reality so you can say if dhamma is the substance then buddha is the function sangha is the manifestation so there's no subject object. The mind isn't looking at it. It's not looking it's, at an object. It's the Dhamma aware of its own nature. Of its own nature, yeah. So it could be your, well, not your, but it could be the natural state, <coughs> as it were. But it's not a state. <laughs> it's called. This is called the minefield. <laughs> With both both meanings of the word mine, so you have to tread carefully. If there's anybody treading on anything, tread carefully. It's interesting, uh, it's interesting because I was talking with, uh, once with uh, Anna Schempen, who's a teacher in the Tibetan tradition. You know yes. And she said to me, really, uh, confidently, she said, uh, actually, the forest tradition is, is not. Uh, and she didn't say, I don't know how she phrased it, but not Theravada. It's something that. You know, she could recognize the Torah's traditions being part of something, one of the teaching of the Tibetan tradition, or almost. Yeah, they, they say that, but uh, they, uh, it's because they've got a kind of biased view of, of Theravada. I've had a few conversations with people out of the Tibetan tradition they say, you know, there must have been some, I think there's some Thai forest Ajans, they kind of came across the Himalayas and they, they must have received Dzogchen teachings from the masters in the Himalayas because, you know, it's a, that's the only way they could have got these teachings. And it's like, rubbish, it's right here in the Pali Canon. <laughs> that's one of the reasons we wrote this book. <laughs> no, but others have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, um, yeah, they're trying to be sort of polite and say, oh, how wonderful that your masters came and received teachings from the, <laughs> the real source. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> Watching the uh, conceiving is a, a tumor, conceiving is a bar. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's because they get this, this uh, um, there was a very interesting little book um, uh, which was uh, a, a Book of Dzogchen teachings, and it was um, I forget what this, this title was. It was like um, the um, something like uh, the 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 realization liberation through direct seeing, or something like that. Anyway, there's this big build up to um, this is the ultimate teaching, and in the in the prologue you have there are these nine grades of Buddhist practice. Of course, Theravada comes across as number nine, <laughs> the bottom of the heap. And that uh, you have you know, Dzogchen teachings up at number one, of course. And so then you get this, then the, through the text, uh, <clears throat> uh, liberation through, uh, through seeing with naked awareness, that's called. That's cool. And it's translated by a guy called John Meriden Reynolds. Anyway, so that you get this big build-up. This, this is the teaching, this is the truth, this is the ultimately liberating transmission. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. And then, and then the, the big teaching is... Um, the wisdom of your own mind is the Buddha. Well, that's very familiar. <laughs> and uh, so that the, in the you know, in their own text, they're saying uh, this: what what you get from the Southern Buddhist world, Theravada, is this sort of inferior teaching. But then they they just they have not really studied it themselves and seen it from its own sources. So they they inherit uh, a biased view. Of what our teachings and our, our practice are, so that uh, it, it really was one of the reasons why we put a lot of effort into putting this book together to just let people know that uh, there are these very uh, you know, transcendent, liberating teachings that are, are plentiful within the Pali Canon you know, if you know where to look. So we now come on to the mysteries of Nagarjuna once again, and I brought a handy dandy. Um, uh, understandable version of it here from Stephen Batchelor's translation too. So to continue, to illustrate this domain and its intractability to the mind that wants to fix reality on its own habitual materialistic terms, here are some verses from the Mulamajamika Karika, the treatise on the route of the middle way of Acharya Nagarjuna. It is a brilliant exposition on exactly how the skillful use of the principles of conditionality 
and dependent origination can be used to bring about the realization of Nibbana. So if you remember before, I, I, um, uh, I'd asked permission from Stephen Batchelor to use his translation in this, uh, his book called Verses from the Center. And uh, the publishers wouldn't give this permission, but he said, well, the publishers um, uh, don't give permission for you to, to uh, quote from that extensively, but you can use my uh, technical translation uh, of the website if you want to. So what we were allowed to use was his sort of, um, uh, it's very accurate, but it's not terribly poetic. <laughs> so it's, it's true to the Sanskrit of the original, but it's, uh, it makes for, again, somewhat uh, difficult reading and hearing. Um, but I thought I would read you the, the more uh, penetrable <laughs> uh, version, the more so poetic and, and uh, accessible version as well. So I'll read what's here in the book just to, to stick with um, this being uh, what we've written here. But then I'll, I'll read you the, uh, the more digestible and penetrable uh, rendering afterwards. So this is called Investigation of Nirvana. So, and this is uh, chapter 25 of the Mula Majamika Karika. If everything were empty, there would be no arising and, and perishing. From the letting go of and ceasing of, what could one assert nirvana in? Okay. From the letting go, from the letting go of and ceasing of what? Could one assert nirvana in? If everything were not empty, there would be no arising and perishing. From the letting go of and ceasing of what could one assert nirvana in? No letting go, no attainment, no annihilation, no permanence, no cessation, no birth. That is spoken of as nirvana. Nirvana is not a thing. Then it would follow that there would have, sorry, then it would follow that it would have the characteristics of aging and death. There does not exist anything that is without aging and death. If nirvana were a thing, nirvana would be a conditioned phenomenon. There does not exist anything anywhere that is not a conditioned phenomenon. If nirvana were a thing, how would nirvana not be dependent? There does not exist anything at all that is not dependent. If nirvana were not a thing, how could it possibly be nothing? For uh, the one for whom nirvana is not a thing, for him it is not nothing. If nirvana were nothing, how could nirvana possibly be not dependent? There does not exist any nothing which is not dependent. So even, even nothings depend on something. <laughs> Whatever things come and go are dependent or caused. Not being dependent and not being caused is taught to be nirvana. The teacher taught it to be the letting go of and arising, sorry. The teacher taught it to be the letting go of arising and perishing. Therefore, it is correct that nirvana is not a thing or nothing. If nirvana were both a thing and nothing, it would follow that it would be a thing or nothing. That's incorrect. If nirvana were both a thing and nothing, nirvana would not be non-dependent because it would depend on those two. How could nirvana be both a thing and nothing? Nirvana is unconditioned. Things and nothings are conditioned. How could nirvana exist as both a thing and nothing? Those two do not exist as one. They are like light and dark. The presentation of neither a thing nor nothing as nirvana will be established only if things and nothings are established. If nirvana is neither a thing nor nothing, by who could neither a thing nor nothing be perceived? After the Bhagavan has entered nirvana, one cannot perceive him, it, as existing, likewise as not existing, nor can one perceive him or it as both or neither. 
Even when the Bhagavan is alive, one cannot perceive him or it as existing, likewise as not existing, nor can one perceive it, him or it as both or neither. So that relates um, to the teaching, uh, the dialogue with Anuradha that we'll come to in the, uh, <coughs> the chapter on unapprehendability of the enlightenment in the, uh, the next chapter along. Sangsara does not have the slightest distinction from nirvana. Nirvana does not have the slightest distinction from sangsara. Whatever is the end of nirvana, that is the end of sangsara. There is not even a very subtle, slight distinction between the two. Views about who passes beyond, ends, etc., and permanence, etc., are contingent upon nirvana and latter ends and former ends. In the emptiness of all things, what ends are there? What non-ends are there? What ends and non-ends are there? What of neither are there? Is there this? Is there the other? Is there permanence? Is there impermanence? Is there both permanence and impermanence? Is there neither? Totally pacifying all reference that's R-E-F-E-R-E-N-T-S, reference, all things that you can refer to. Totally pacifying all reference and totally pacifying fixations is peace. And fixations there is papancha, proliferations. The Buddha nowhere taught any dharma to anyone. So the... Other version of this. This is in um, uh, verses from the center. So this is the, the same the same text, but uh, hopefully a little bit more uh, understandable. Nirvana. Were everything not empty, nothing would happen. Nirvana would be a letting go and stopping of of what. Nothing let go of, nothing attained, nothing annihilated, nothing eternal, unceasing and unborn. That is nirvana. If it were something, nirvana would be contingent, and it would wither and die like all other things. Can nirvana be nothing? Not to be something does not mean to be nothing. Were nirvana nothing, it would be contingent like all other nothings. Things are created and contingent. Nirvana is neither. The letting go of what rises and passes is neither something nor nothing. Sorry. The letting go of what rises and passes is neither something nor nothing. Were Nirvana both something and nothing, things and nothings would be free. Or Nirvana would be as contingent as they. Darkness and light cannot be one. Can I experience nirvana as neither something nor nothing? That would be possible only if something or nothing were. After the Buddha died, he was not seen as existing or not. Even when he lived, he was not seen as such. Life is no different from nirvana. Nirvana, no different than life. Life's horizons are nirvanas. The two are exactly the same. Visions of the beyond, of eternity, annihilation, depend on how you see nirvana, the past and the future. What finitude in empty things? What infinity? What this? What else? What stays? What changes? The dissolving of objects and easing of fixations is peace. The Buddha never taught anyone anything. So there's a lot there <laughs> and um, the, uh, often with these, these kind of very dense teachings I find the, the most helpful way is to take a single verse or a couple, of, a couple of lines and just sit on it for a day or two or a week. <laughs> okay now what does that, what does that mean? Because it's, a, it's very, very uh, succinct, and when people 
my my uh, understanding of uh, many of the people who tried to translate Nagarjuna over the years that uh, the the kind of brevity and spareness of the the text is is really hard to work with. There's, there's no padding at all. It's just the the essence of the essence. So it, it's quite densely packed. But I, I feel that these are and the reason why we included it was because these are very significant teachings and reflections. But uh, there's a lot in the that package. So it, I feel it's a helpful thing to take a single verse or a single line, just a, one little observation, and say, now, what does that mean? Or how does that work? And to uh, internalize it, because it's not just a matter of having an intellectual understanding of, of the words and how the, you know, the grammar of a sentence holds together so it's meaningful, but how that maps onto our own experience of how the mind creates this and that, or things and, and nothings, and, and such like. And when uh, <clears throat> when it, uh, it particularly when it talks about nothing being a thing, or uh, it's a, it's a related also to the the way that we use the word emptiness, and uh, particularly in, in the northern Buddhist world, that sunyata, shunyata, is um, uh, you would think well you know well nothing is a, it means a, it's an absence of what's uh, uh, there. It means it, it's a there's a uh, you know, how can you think of nothing as being a thing? But um, the, when we talk about emptiness, it's, uh, there's a, 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 and in the later chapter we, we talk about this, it's a, it's a relative term. So like, and when the Buddha, in one of the, uh, the, the Buddha's teachings, that again, is in, is in there, um, the Chula Sunyata Sutta, the, less, the shorter discourse on, on emptiness, uh, the Buddha says, he starts off by saying, this uh, assembly hall is empty of horses and elephants. There are no horses and elephants in this hall. It's got people in it. It's not empty of people, but it's empty of horses and elephants. Yeah. And uh, so it, right from the outset, he's saying that, that that quality of being empty is, is relative. You can, you, know, you can say that the, the, there, are, there, are, um, <coughs> there are things here, but it's, there are other things that are absent. So that the way of using the term nothing or, or empty, it's necessarily uh, a, um, uh, a relative term. And so that when we say that uh, the, um, uh, say that there's, there's silence, it's not really silent. You can hear the ticking of the clock. My voice has stopped. So you say, oh, he's, Ajahn Amra has gone silent. There's the ticking of the clock. There's the subtle uh, noises of our, our bodies moving, uh, our socks on the carpet. There's the inner sound of the the nada, the, the inner ringing in the ears. So there's there's uh, it's not silent, <laughs> but relatively speaking, you know, if we're making my voice the main th noise that's happening, if I stop talking, we say, oh, it's silent. But that's uh, that silence is is relative. So when we say when we call something empty, or we, we say uh, you know, that there is nothing there, that's in relationship to the what's framing the space, and um, that that um, um, that kind of um, that way that um, that the the um, say that you say this hall is is empty of elephants and horses. Like the framework is the hall is the sala. That, that creates the the framework for that that being um, uh, empty. There's a, a very uh, wonderful little philosophy book by uh, a, a French philosopher called Gaston Bachelard, who used to be a postman before he became a philosopher. Interesting career tra trajectory, <laughs> and it's called the Poetics of Space. So he's a philosopher, but he's a, quite a readable philosopher. And the Poetics of Space. And it, it, it relates to the same kind of theme, that when we say something is a space, or that something is lacking, or is, is open, then it's, there's always a context. You say that this, um, you know, this, this glass is, has, has got water in it, but it, it's empty of dragons. There are, no, there are no nagas in this glass of water, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Only very small ones. So. There is water in the glass, but it's empty of nagas. Or we, Say that there is 
there is no fire burning in this world. It's, it's empty of that. Or an example that I, I use later on in other chapters, like the you can say like in the um, the opening bars of Beethoven's Sith, you can see these two silences. Da 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 da. Da 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 da. So those are silent, but they're they 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 have a poetry. There's a there's a quality that they have because of the they're framed by the musical notes that go around them. So just on that uh, that one point in this that um, I, th uh, uh, I feel is helpful to to reflect on that um, that when he says uh, a nothing is is actually a something, <laughs> but then. That's one of the aspects of it that is that one can reflect on. And then before I go on, I'll read some Ajahn Chah on the same area, particularly about samsara and nirvana. So this is from his talk called Living with the Cobra. This is the collected teachings of Ajahn Chah. And so this is uh, Living with the Cobra, this is on page 235. So we say that mental activity is like the deadly poisonous cobra. If we don't interfere with a cobra, it simply goes its own way. Even though it may be extremely poisonous, we're not affected by it. We don't go near it or take hold of it, and it doesn't bite us. The cobra does what is natural for a cobra to do. That's the way it is. If you're clever, you'll leave it alone. Let be that which is not good. Let it be according to its own nature. Also let be that which is good. Let your liking and your disliking be. The same way that you don't interfere with the cobra. So, one who is intelligent will have this kind of attitude towards the various moods that arise in the mind. When goodness arises, we let it be good, but we also know. We understand its nature. So too, we let be the not good. We let it be according to its nature. We don't take hold of it, because we don't want anything. We don't want evil, neither do we want good. We want neither heaviness nor lightness, happiness nor suffering. When, in this way, your, our wanting is at an end, peace is firmly established. When we have this kind of peace established in our minds, we can depend on it. This peace, we say, has arisen out of confusion. Confusion has ended. The Buddha called the attainment of final enlightenment an extinguishing, in the same way that a fire is extinguished. We extinguish fire at the place at which it appears. Wherever it's hot, that's where we can make it cool. And so it is with enlightenment. Nibbana is found in samsara. Enlightenment and delusion exist in the same place, just as do hot and cold. It's hot where it was cold, and cold where it was hot. When heat arises, the coolness disappears. And when there is coolness, there's no more heat. In this way, Nibbana and Samsara are the same. So again, uh, Ajahn Chah's teachings are a bit more penetrable than Nagarjuna. <laughs> um, but also, uh, it's, uh, there are many uh, individual points in there, and it's helpful sometimes to take a, a particular theme, just a couple of sentences, or just a, a few words, and to, to pick that up and to... Uh, to reflect on that. So this is from uh, Living with the Cobra, and uh, uh, one of the teachings he gave about, uh, I was actually there when he gave this talk um, at Wat Pananashat, um, if I remember correctly, back in 1978. And um, <coughs> this, um, uh, uh, this image of samsara and nibbana, as he says, that in this way they are the same, he would make the point uh, often that, that they're the, like they're the the front and the back of the hand. They they are a uh, they're connected because both samsara and nibbana are known by the same mind. They they are um, the, they're not separate in that way. They have different 
textures, but they, as he says, that um, they both happen in the same place. They're 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 connected in that way. So it's a a different way uh, of approaching it, but also it's a, a similar theme. So I thought that was very uh, pertinent and uh, picking up that particular point in the Nagarjuna reading. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Ajahn? Yes. What is the origin of the previous book you read, the smaller one? This one? Oh, yes. This is Stephen Batchelor's translation of the Mula Majamika Karika. So the, the verses on the route of the middle way. So uh, someone's marked up this copy quite drastically. Um, and so uh, he's taken the the translation. So the one I read first is like the literal translation. Then he's put it into a slightly more readable and poetic form. So this is published by Riverhead Books. Um, and, uh, and there's also a useful um, introduction uh, to it that uh, he, he gives some quite a bit of, of explan uh, explanation. So it's actually about half the book is, is his commentary. So that much of the book is his introduction. And then, yeah, that much is the actual poetry. And then that much is the notes at the end. So, uh, and it is, I mean, he's, a, people uh, sometimes object to, to his views, but, uh, and his kind of um, strident quality. But he, he's actually extremely knowledgeable about the, um, uh, the scriptures. And I was just um, spent a, a while, uh, a, a, some time with him a couple of years ago. We went for a 10-day long walk through the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. And, um, and one of the things that uh, was interesting to hear from him is that nowadays he doesn't read anything. Um, the only Buddhist uh, text he reads is the Pali Canon. He's been learning Pali from Bhikkhu Bodhi. And so he and he has um, yeah, tremendous respect for the for the Pali teachings. So even though he can come across in uh, uh, in his writings as being very um, what they call iconoclastic, sort of tearing down traditions and being uh, critical, uh, I have quite a lot of respect for his scholarship and um, also his understanding of uh, of the uh, uh, you know, of the texts. We don't agree on everything, of course. <laughs> But uh, that's where this comes from. Let's see when did he translate this? Uh, 2000. So this was done 17 years ago. This is from the library. So I just borrowed it off the shelf from the library. <coughs> so. So uh, to continue, then <coughs> we, um, we go on to the uh, readings from the Melinda Panha. The purpose of these passages is to cut to the heart of our habitual delusions about time and self and things. They teach us how to counteract the dictates of the conditioned mind and point to the fact that, in ultimate reality, there is no arising and no passing. And furthermore, no substantial beings or things to be arising and passing away. Some similar areas of Dhamma were examined a few centuries before Acharya Nagarjuna and were recorded in the questions of King Melinda. It's significant in the following exchange between the elder, that's uh, Elder Nagasena, and the king, King Melinda, how the element of morality, sila, and its role in the realization of Nibbana are brought firmly into prominence. So the first passage is from Melinda Panha, verse 323, and the second part is 326 to 328. Ni uh, <coughs> Nibbana is neither past, nor future, nor present. It is neither produced, nor not produced, nor to be produced, yet it exists and may be realized. So uh, going back yet to the reading yesterday, talking about hoti and ati, the two different verbs to be. So hoti is the so to be in terms of past, present, future, being in terms of uh, ordinary and conditioned perceptions. Um, ati is the existing uh, existence in a timeless mode. 
So this is uh, a section of the Melinda Panha called Nibbana is not a place. So you have a, the first thing is that King Melinda or King Menanda, who was a, a, a Greek uh, king, uh, one of these remnants of Alexander's uh, invasion of, of India, uh, King uh, Menanda in Greek, uh, Melinda in Pali. Reverend Nagasena, is this region in the east or the south or the west or in the north or above or below or across this region where Nibbana is located? Great King, the region does not exist either in the east or in the south or in the west or in the north or above or below or across where Nibbana is located. If, Reverend Nagasena, there is no place where Nibbana is located, then there is no Nibbana. And as for those who have realized Nibbana, their realization also is vain. Let me tell you why I think so. Reverend Nagasena, just as on earth a field is the place of origin of crops, a flower is the place of origin of odors, a bush is the place of origin of flowers, a tree is the place of origin of fruits, a mine is the place of origin of jewels. Insomuch that whoever desires anything has but to go to the proper place and get it. Precisely so, Reverend Nagasena, if Nibbana really exists, it also follows that a place of origin of this Nibbana must be postulated. But since, Reverend Nagasena, there is no place of origin of Nibbana, therefore I say there is no Nibbana. And as for those who have realized Nibbana, their realization also is vain. So he's saying that because you can't go to a place where Nibbana is, um, it doesn't have a, an origin, a, a, um, a source, then people who say they've realized Nibbana, then uh, that is a vain or a false or a deluded uh, declaration. So then uh, Venerable Nagasena responds, Great King, there is no place where Nibbana is located. Nevertheless, this Nibbana really exists. And a man, by ordering his walk aright, which is his um, uh, Burlingame, this was an E.W. Burlingame in the way back about 100 years ago, um, more than 100 years, 100 years ago did this translation. So when he uses this phrase, uh, ordering his walk aright, that means practicing wisely, by diligent mental effort realizes Nibbana. Great king, just as there is a there is such a thing as fire, but no place where it is located. The fact being that a man, by rubbing two sticks together, produces fire. So also, great king, there is such a thing as Nibbana, but no place where it is located. The fact being that a man, by ordering his walk aright, by practicing wisely, by diligent mental effort, realizes Nibbana, and so forth. Reverend Nagasena, let it be granted that there is no place where Nibbana is located, but is there a place where a man must stand in order, sorry, is there a place where a man must stand to order his walk aright, to practice wisely and realize Nibbana? Yes, great king, there is a place where a man must stand to order his walk aright, to practice wisely and realize Nibbana. But what reverence, sir, is the place where a man must stand to order his walk aright, to practice wisely and realize Nibbana? Morality, great king, is the place. Abiding steadfast in morality, putting forth diligent mental effort, whether in the land of the Scythians or in the land of the Greeks, whether in China or in Tartary, whether in Alexandria or Nikumba, whether in Kasi or Kosala, whether in Kashmir or in Gandhara, whether or on a mountaintop or in the highest heaven, no matter where a man may stand, by ordering his walk aright, by practicing wisely, he realizes Nibbana. Good, Reverend Nagasena. You have made it plain what Nibbana is. You have made it plain what the realization of Nibbana is. You have well described the power of morality. You have made it plain how a man orders his walk aright, practices wisely. You have uplifted the banner of truth. You have set the eye of truth in its socket. You have demonstrated that right effort on the part of those who put forth diligent effort is not barren. 
It is just as you say, most excellent of excellent teachers. I agree, absolutely. <laughs> so a little bit of a, so, <clears throat> uh, hyperbola there on the part of the um, His Majesty. But uh, that's uh, part of the tone of uh, some of these scriptural teachings. So that, uh, that the image there, um, the two key points is that he uses the image of like fire. You can't say, you know, fire doesn't live somewhere, um, but it's potential. Uh, if you um, uh, rub two sticks together or you, um, uh, say, act in particular ways that enable combustible materials to burst into flame, then fire is there. But it's not like, the, you know, the fire is, is some place um, and that uh, is, um, you know, it can be found where, where fire lives as a permanent abiding and so that uh, it's using that uh, analogy of like yes, nibbana can't be found in a particular spot, um, but the the potential. I, I feel it's quite a good analogy in many ways because the, saying the potential for realizing nibbana is, is always there. You know, if one practices wisely, then regardless of the geographical location or the spiritual domain, if if uh, things are um, conducted appropriately, just like you know, the, the conditions are there for fire to manifest, if the conditions are there for that realization to, to ripen, then Nibbana will be realized in that location. But then uh, he makes this point about sila, which is, which is very significant, and um, that uh, uh, having said you know, that Nibbana can be realized anywhere, then he says, but... <laughs> The, the the point is that one has to be established in in sila that is the the foundation that um, is that without sila as the the basis then the conditions it's like if the if the wood that you're trying to rub together is is soggy or you're trying to strike a match that's already been lit no matter how much you try and strike the the dead match on the matchbox it's not going to catch fire because the conditions aren't there so he uh, clearly outlines yeah, sila as a prerequisite condition for that quality of uh, of realizing nibbana. So it also relates to um, the, there's a, a teaching in the Anguttara Nikaya, um, <coughs> where uh, which is uh, it's uh, often known as liberation is a natural process. It's in the Book of the Tens, Sutta number two, and uh, the Buddha says. Uh, for one who um, who keeps a sila, who practices morality, there's no need for them to think, may my heart be free from remorse, because it's natural for one who is uh, keeping the precepts and living in a moral way for their heart to be free from, from remorse. For one who is free from remorse, there's no need for them to think, uh, may I feel relaxed and at ease, because one who is... Um, uh, one who is uh, uh, free from remorse will naturally feel you know, relaxed and at ease, and... And uh, one who is relaxed and at ease, just to the abbreviated version. It's in the Book of the Tens because there's ten kind of uh, layers to it. So he says, um, one who is relaxed and at ease experiences contentment. One who is uh, as content, there's no need for them to think, may my mind uh, concentrate, because one who is, who is at ease, who is contented, it's, uh, it's natural for them to be able to concentrate the mind. One who is constant, whose mind is concentrated, there's no need for them to think. May knowledge and vision of the way things are arise, because when the mind is is concentrated, then it's natural for knowledge and vision of the way things are to arise. And one who experiences knowledge and vision of the way things are, there's no need for them to think. May uh, may liberation uh, arise, because one who sees uh, the the way things are, it's natural for there uh, to be dispassion, detachment, and liberation. So. It's a, a very fine and helpful little sutta, but it's talking about a natural progression based on, on sila and how those things will unfold. It doesn't say how quickly they will unfold. <laughs> <laughs> there is quick uh, is easy practice with quick result, easy practice with slow result, difficult practice with quick result, difficult practice with slow result. Is it related to the level of sila not necessarily. You might be heavily deluded and keep very good sila. 
you know, or you might have had, you know, created a lot of bad karma, and that has all kinds of resonances. But you the might. Yeah, the slowness is generally to do with the um, karmic conditioning mm-hmm. and the, the choices that have been made either in this life or previous lives. I, I also, when I was reading the Sutta, I also um, remember um, thinking that it was also a way of expressing that um, you don't have, uh, don't have to rely on an external something well, it's very true. It doesn't in, in that in that teaching. It doesn't talk about in that particular instance. It doesn't talk about hearing the Dhamma. It doesn't talk about drawing close to a, a teacher or spiritual friends. Or I mean, it does in other places, but in that particular progression, it's 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 very much uh, within the individual. It's like a self-reliance. There, in the uh, another teaching, the four conditions for um, realizing stream entry, the um, which comes in later on in, in the book, the sapurisa um, sangseva. So, drawing close to uh, to superior persons, to drawing close to wise people, uh, hearing the true dhamma, dhamma savana, hearing the dhamma, uh, wise reflection, yoniso manasikara. And then uh, Dhamma Anu Dhamma Patipata, practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma. So those are the four conditions conducive to stream entry. So the first one is drawing close to good people. So, but in that particular, but the, uh, in that particular um, passage in the Book of the Tens, it's, it's all just referring to the internal changes, you know, the, within an individual. So just read a little bit more, maybe just get to the end of the chapter. We go on a little bit. To underscore the quality of placelessness, the non-locality of Dhamma, here we have Ajahn Chah's final message to Ajahn Sumedho, which was sent by letter, a rare if not unique occurrence, in the summer of 1981. Shortly after this uh, was received at Chithurst Forest Monastery in England, Ajahn Chah suffered the stroke that left him paralyzed and mute for the last ten years of his life. So I was also I was at Chithurst when uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha got this letter. And it was actually written by uh, one of the Western monks. And uh, it started off by saying, uh, Dear Ajahn Sumedha, you're never going to believe this, but Lumpur asked me to take dictation. So, <laughs> so he said, Santa Chita, write this down. So, so it was actually written in, uh, in uh, Ajahn Santa Chita's hand. Um, and what he says is whenever you have feelings of of love or hate for anything whatsoever these will be your aids and partners in building paramita the Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards nor in moving backwards nor in standing still this Sumato is your place of non-abiding Whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building paramita. The Buddha Dhamma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Sumato is your place of non-abiding. You could probably sit on that for the rest of the month. (laughs) There's also in in Ajahn Chah's collected teachings, there's one of his many wonderful Dhamma talks is called No Abiding and so this also uh, speaks a lot about this this particular theme so of course when you're looking for it you can't find it It's uh, the fourth in here, the fourth talk is on page 29, No Abiding. This was by no means the first time that Ajahn Chah had used this expression. 
are neither moving forwards, backwards, nor standing still. For example, see Food for the Heart, Collected Teachings of Ajahn Chah, page 339. But it is perhaps significant that these were the words he chose to write as final instructions to one of his closest and most influential disciples. So this was the last communication in words between Lumpur Chah and uh, Lumpur Sumedha. So, uh, the, and that was during the, the Rains Retreat of uh, 1984. Uh, Ajahn Chah, he knew his health was, was sliding and he was staying at Tamsung Pet Monastery. And during that time, he asked uh, Ajahn Santajito to take dictation and he wrote this letter. And then he had this, um, this stroke and um, was um, uh, paralyzed, not completely, first of all, but over the next eight or nine months. Then it progressed until um, about a, within a, a year he couldn't uh, speak, couldn't, uh, couldn't walk, and he could uh, only move one of his hands a little bit. And then he even lost that mobility after a couple of years. So that was the last. Uh, I always reflect on this, like, okay, you've got the great master giving the final instructions to, okay, Samedo, there you are, leading the, uh, the, um, the community out in the West. It's, it's all on your shoulders now. Do this, 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 and this. And whatever you do, don't do that, 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 or that. You definitely don't do that. <laughs> so this was Ajahn Chah's list of do's, list of do's and don'ts. So it's like, uh, it's amazingly insightful and helpful. So it, it, cause it, it's the advice that encompasses every situation. If you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building Baramita. Again, from that, that, um, the teaching on living with the cobra, we, we let go of what we dislike, we let go of what we like, we let go of, of badness, we let go of goodness. Where whether you love it or you hate it, these will be your aids and partners in building barami, paramita. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards when things are going really well, nor in moving backwards, it's all falling apart, nor in standing still. This Sumedha is your place of non-abiding. So that's the uh, absolutely practical, helpful advice for uh, leading Dharma communities <laughs> and everything else in life. This centrality of the principle that he is pointing to, that the conundrum can only be solved through non-identification with self, time, and location, is also alluded to by the opening sutta of the Sangyutta Nikaya. So this is in the Sangyutta, the um, connected discourses, the very, very first sutta, so section one, sutta number one, uh, they have a, a devata speaking to the Buddha. And devata asked the Buddha, how, dear sir, did you cross the flood? Like, how did you get across from the, from the, the where it's dangerous to the place of safety? Across the flood, the, the kind of raging river. By not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and by not straining, you crossed the flood? When I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled... Then I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. This finding of the subtle middle way, which transcends the two extremes rather than being just halfway between them, is a theme that is repeated throughout the Pali Canon. It's addressed particularly in the teaching to Bahia and in Itivutaka Sutta number 94 and various other teachings that we've quoted already, as well as numerous other places and then suttas that will come later on in the book. Perhaps a simple analogy for the finding of this mysterious middle is to be found once again in the three-dimensional magic eye pictures. At first glance, such pictures seem to be a blur of print, perhaps with no distinct forms discernible in them at all. The extreme of coming to a standstill or holding back would be to turn away and ignore the picture. The extreme of struggling or overreaching would be to stare at the, pic, uh, the page intently, rigorously following the instructions to hold it at the right distance and focus beyond the surface, but so eager to find the hidden image that the eyes cross and uncross, vision blurs until eventually one gets a headache and gives up. It's only when there is the interest, the correct methodology, and a relaxed attention to the process 
that we find the palm trees and the dinosaurs, the swooping eagle emerging from the confused blur, and, moreover, formed in a distinct three-dimensional realm that no amount of force or trickery or blind obedience to a formula can reveal. Another analogy that might be useful when investigating these areas where habitual approaches and language no longer apply is in the nature of the subatomic realm. Scientists have found that conventional notions of time and space cease to have much relevance below the Planck scale, distances less than 10 to the minus 35 meters, as you will have remembered yesterday. Such ultra-microscopic examinations of the world leave us, similarly, in a vastly different conceptual landscape, for they too describe an arena of the universe in which the conventional notions of left and right, back and forth, up and down, and even before and after lose their meaning. In sum, the mind cannot be said to be truly anywhere. Furthermore, material things ultimately cannot be said to be anywhere either. There is no there there, as Gertrude Stein famously put it. She was talking about Oakland, which is a somewhat nondescript town across the bay from San Francisco, just south of Berkeley. So <clears throat> the people of Oakland and their city hall have actually hoisted a flag saying, there. <laughs> they are there. But Gertrude Stein made the observation, there is no there there. The world of our perceptions is a realm of convenient fictions. There is nothing solid or separate to be found in either the domain of the subject or that of the object, whether it be an act of cognition, an emotion, the song of a bird, or this book that you hold in your hands or that you're hearing words of. However, even though all attributes of subject and object might be unlocated and thus ungraspable, with wisdom they can be truly known. It's the end of chapter 9, and the next chapter is called The Unapprehendability of the Enlightened. So, we'll leave it there for today.